Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me today in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon. And Joe Manis with the St. Louis Beacon. And he's been a longtime fan of the Politically Speaking Podcast, <laughs> but he's now joining us in studio. We have... Tim Jones. I am the Speaker of the House for the state of Missouri, and it's a real pleasure and honor to be here with all of you. Well, we've, we finally made it big time, guys. <laughs> we've, we finally made it. Well, Mr. Speaker, thank you very much for joining us. Why don't you, you know, I would wager that most of our listeners have, have heard your name before, but they might not know sort of your story and how you got into politics. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's a it's a long road. I, I am only 42 years old, but I've been involved in politics uh, at, some, at some level most of my life. I, of course, jumped right into student council back in my grade school days, and from there, the rest is history, I was guess. Was it a nasty campaign? It, it, it was. Uh, it, we, we tried to keep it above board, but the media <laughs> didn't help. So, <laughs> uh, I probably got most involved uh, in politics during, during my college years, like a, a lot of folks do, and was very in, engaged in uh, college Republicans uh, in school. And then public service was also a very important part of my life as well. I, I went to high school not too far from here. I was, I'm, a, I'm a junior Billiken, so I went to St. Louis U High. And, uh, you know, be, between my, uh, my, my, my parents' upbringing and, and coaching and being a man for others at St. Louis U High, I was very in, involved in community service as well from a very early age. I I, uh, I volunteered down at St. Patrick's Center down here in the city during my high school years. And so politics and public service sort of went hand in hand for me. My first position out of um, law school was at the district attorney's office in Nassau County in, in New York, where I went to school. And I uh, then returned back to the Midwest to my home in the uh, late 90s and jumped into private practice. But I always had that yearning for public service um, and for politics. And so I ran for city council in the uh, great city of Eureka, where I still reside, the home of Six Flags, Super Smokers, and Hidden Valley Ski Resort. So I always <laughs> throw those three out there. World famous. Exactly. And I, uh, I really enjoyed my first big elected office. I, I quickly got engaged on the city council. I became the president of the Board of Aldermen. And I tried to be that bridge between the business community uh, and the city. And um, we, we had some very good years while I was on the board. I served for almost six full years. And as it is a lot of times in politics, timing is everything. My predecessor in that seat was Jack Jackson, who yes. you all probably remember. Yes. Very famous aviator. Almost won a uh, state, uh, state auditor primary loss by a few thousand votes for, for people who don't know. Jack Jackson always told me to keep my powder dry, uh, and when he called me and said he was running for state auditor, he said, I think uh, you would be a, a great person to run in my old seat, and so I did. And um, then I informed my wife, and uh, you know she's never forgiven me since. So <laughs> we jumped into politics with both feet. I ran for uh, state representative back in 2006, was elected. Uh, I've, I'm in my fourth and final term in the Missouri House. I have truly enjoyed it. It's been a great experience. I did not plan on being Speaker of the House when I started, but I had a lot of excellent mentors and colleagues who were in the House ahead of me. Most notably, my uncle, uh, former Representative Kenny Jones, mm -hmm. was in the House one term ahead of me. Uh, he is the father of uh, Caleb Jones, my my cousin. So I guess the Jones, who, yeah, who is now running to succeed you? That's correct. So you know we have the Carnahans, the Holdens, and uh, the, I guess Joneses. the Joneses. Joneses. Now, and, uh, Keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> that's, that's right in uh, in Missouri politics. And 
It has been a it has been a, a incredible experience. I, I have I very much have continued to enjoy both the public service aspect and also the politics of serving in our state house. Okay. Yeah. I suppose now we should get down to the nitty gritty. Yeah. <laughs> HB two fifty three, the yes. tax cut bill, which is probably the marquee issue this year, and it'll be the marquee issue in the uh, veto session. Joe, I think you're correct on that. Now, let's uh, let's start with uh, reminding folks of what happened on that bill during session. We we did not have a veto-proof majority on the the uh, approval vote on that in the House. We had 103 votes. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of reasons for that. It was uh, the vote was held late on a Thursday after the end of a very long budget debate, and so some people had to uh, had to leave the Capitol a little bit early that day. So we had, I think, six Republicans were absent. I believe most of those would have voted yes for the bill. But we had three Democrats also join us um, mm-hmm. on that vote to give us the 103. So we had 100 Republicans and three Democrats. Uh, from what I've only read and heard and not speaking with them directly, I'm not sure if any of those three are going to vote uh, on the override. It appears that Schieffer told me, Ed Schieffer of Troy told me personally that he's, he's a no on that. And I heard from reading the AP article that Hodges is also... Um, a a no on that. Although your 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 best friend in the world, Jeff Rorta, is apparently on the fence about that. But you know, uh, <laughs> that's alluding to a, a well publicized sure. uh, dispute you guys had. And we are now ago. good friends. Yeah, because <laughs> in fact, and we'll, we can talk about this bill later. But Joe, I think uh, uh, Jeff Rorta will be instrumental in helping override the governor on the Doe Run bill, which we can get to later. Right. But, but you're right. Jeff Rorta is the only unknown. And so I have to I have to presume going into this that I need all 109 Republicans to be in the Capitol on September 11th and available to vote on that bill. That is a huge mountain to climb. You all will remember that last year we had a veto override on the religious freedom bill, as we commonly called it. We had to keep the board open for about 25 minutes because we were stuck at 108. And we even had a few Democrats vote with us at that time. People People, um, people have family illnesses. People have deaths in the family. Uh, people have reasons for voting one way or the other. We are not a monolith uh, as a caucus. People have definitely various uh, different opinions about every single bill. I have Republicans who hail from everything from 42% Republican districts to 72% Republican mm-hmm. districts in all corners of the state. So overriding this veto will be monumental if it happens because – Right now, I have to say, uh, I don't know that we have the numbers. Yeah, and I wanted to to touch on that because you mentioned the the Democrats, but there were three Republicans that voted against it in session. Uh, Dennis Fowler, um, uh, Elaine Gannon, and Kent Hampton. Elaine Gannon and Kent Hampton are in very much swing districts, and it seems like, you know, since since the – and also Nate Walker has said that he's not going to override it as well – um, with those four Republicans in mind, is it is it possible to to override it, or is it is as you mentioned, just kind of too mountainous to climb at this point? Yeah, it's likely likely I would not even attempt an override because unless those three or four individuals and the number sort of fluctuates every day, somebody <laughs> says, "Well, I don't know," or "Yes, I am." Uh, unless unless those individuals and others who have concerns can look me in the eye and say. Mr. Speaker, I'm going to vote for the override. Then there is no reason for me to bring it up because I don't think there'll be a single Democratic vote for the override when it comes down to it, which is a real shame because I think the bill as a whole is something that will move Missouri forward out of its 48th place in the nation of GDP growth. Uh, We have a stagnant – we have a good economy, 
but we seem to be stuck in neutral. And for this governor to suddenly not support tax relief for all Missourians is is a bit uh, perplexing to me. Now, uh, as obviously you you know that one of the big sticking points and what he's been promoting is that the provision that exempt gets rid of the sales tax exemption for prescription drugs, which uh, the budget director says would actually raise taxes about about two hundred million a year. I know you have said that um, that could be fixed. Uh, the governor's saying. Don't trust these guys if they say it's going to be fixed. Uh, is, is that the big sticking point when you're talking to people? Or is there some other provision in the bill that seems to be the sticking point? Joe, I have found it very strange that the governor, for the first time, that I don't know if any of you remember anything like this happening before. I find it very strange that this governor has spent most of the interim and most of the summer traveling the state yes. complaining about a bill that was passed that he vetoed. He is spending an inordinate amount of political capital and an inordinate amount of taxpayer funds on the airplane, flying around the state, driving around the state, complaining about a bill that he's now vetoed that is very likely not going to be overridden. I mean, I think it would be a monumental achievement for us if we do. Uh, I, I, I would like to see the governor spend his time telling us what he is his plan for Missouri. If he doesn't like this particular tax plan, what is his plan for taxation for Missourians? What is his plan for the education crisis we have? What is his plan for improving our ranking of 48th in GDP growth? What is his plan for the uh, school transfer crisis that we have in the state? I, I think it's very strange that the governor is, is, I think, wasting his bully pulpit in spending all summer long complaining about a tax cut bill. And, you know, when you look at the bill itself, it's a very measured approach to providing tax relief for all Missourians. I, I question whether the governor truly has read the bill because it is not the Kansas plan. It is not even the first plan we had, which was Senate Bill 26, I believe. This was a step back from both of those, and it was a very much a show-me state plan. It was, I think, the right thing to do and the smart thing to do in that it was graduated tax relief, reduction of the tax burden for all Missourians, with the aspect of maintaining the current budget we have of $24.7 billion, the largest budget in state's history. So I don't believe that revenue will be impacted other than to increase it over the next 10 years. Now, is there, I know that that's based prim primarily on the view that if we cut corporate taxes in half, that that's going to encourage more businesses to come to Missouri. And just, just to kind of get a little bit in the weeds here for our listeners about what you think are the biggest uh, positive parts of the yes. bill. Yes. I think what this is, is a, a it truly is a philosophical discussion on tax reform and taxation in general between now ourselves and the governor. And it's funny that we're having this debate now because for four years, the governor pretty much accepted our positions on tax policy and signed every bill we passed. Including the, the franchise tax elimination. Yeah, Correct. For... And the governor just ran last November on a pro-growth, pro-jobs uh, reduction in taxes policy where he was very proud of the balanced budget, working with Republicans and the AAA bond rating. Well, the way to preserve those things is to look around the nation and see what other states are doing. So, Joe, to answer your question, I believe that if you look around the country and you see where are the jobs going and where is the economy increasing, it's largely in states that are in the South and the West, largely red states, and largely states that are reducing their tax burdens and either maintaining their right-to-work status or moving towards a more worker freedom environment. That is where these 
That is where companies large and small are moving. When Boeing decided to increase its operations recently over the last five years, you know, Seattle-based Boeing, where did they do it? Uh, they did it in South Carolina, which is a right-to-work state that is lowering its tax, its tax structure for all of its citizens. North Carolina just passed a significant tax cut package. Wisconsin, of all places, just passed a tax cut package. Uh, New York is running commercials right here locally, talking about how they're trying to reduce their corporate income tax rate. So I find it strange that Governor Nixon seems to be running the opposite way of all of these states that are looking to reduce the tax burden on their citizens, because that is where businesses want to go. They want to have a low, fair tax structure. I think you were quoted before by somebody else that you said that you want to pass, quote unquote, right to work out of the House next year. First of all, is that actually true? And second, do you think that that can get out of the Senate without a previous question motion, which squashes a filibuster, considering that most likely all the Democratic senators and several Republicans will probably try to stop that from either getting to the governor's desk or getting to the ballot? Missouri does definitely not exist in an oasis or a vacuum. We are surrounded by eight very highly competitive states. Well, maybe with the exception of our good brothers and sisters in Illinois, who seem to have their you're, own. <laughs> you're breaking my heart. Right. <laughs> they, uh, maybe, we, native. maybe we have to leave them out of the competitive uh, discussion. <laughs> but the other seven states are very, they're, they're hyper-competitive. We're all competing for every job uh, every day. Six of the eight bordering states that surround us are right-to-work states. Uh, Kentucky's not a right-to-work state, but for all intents and purposes, it might as well be with, the, with, its, with its labor rules and laws that they have. So we really have a decision to make. We can either look towards the states that are surrounding us who are lowering their tax structure and either becoming right-to-work states or maintaining that status, or we can look to states in the Rust Belt to our, to our east and to our north that are losing jobs, losing population, and, uh, and, and, and lowering and, re- and shrinking their economies. So, Jason, I, I do believe it's important for us to have that debate next year. Based upon many of the votes we had this year on paycheck protection and on prevailing wage reform, I do believe a worker freedom bill that gives workers the choice of whether or not they want to join an organization and how much of their dues they want to pay to that organization, it would be successfully voted out of the House. And it's going to be on my agenda for next year. The Senate? Mm-hmm. I know that the leader, the majority leader in the Senate, Ron Richard, is a big fan of right to work coming from Joplin, mm-hmm. coming from a, a section of our state that is still one of the parts of the state that does have significant manufacturing, one of the few places left in the southeast and the southwest. Uh, I don't yet know how far the Senate's willing to go, mm-hmm. but I'm willing to give them the opportunity. Now, one of the things that you've been quoted elsewhere saying is that if the tax cut bill veto isn't overridden or if there's some sort of behind-the-scenes discussion, you have said that you would want to put something else out next session. Or is there any sort of discussions going on with the governor's office now about what could be crafted next year if this isn't overridden? Well, it's been tough to uh, to find the governor in one place and pin him down because he's been traveling around so much <laughs> complaining about the current bill. But in all, in all seriousness... I have made the offer to him twice now in the last week, and I'd be happy to sit down with him privately at any time and discuss whether or not he does favor reducing taxes for all Missourians, not just corporations, not just the wealthy, but for all Missourians, which is what House Bill 253 does in a very smart, common-sense way. But if there's pieces of that bill that the governor has problems with, if he truly does have 
uh, heartburn about uh, a, a provision or two, then I want him to answer this question. Governor, do you favor tax relief for all Missourians, or are you just flat out opposed to any further um, tax relief for all of our taxpaying citizens? If he does not favor that, then, then then we're truly stuck. But Joe, I hope that's not where we are. I hope maybe he just keeps having the complaint of the week about 253, and maybe there is a bill he would sign. So let's sit down and craft that bill. If I'm not able to do the override, this is going to be a huge priority, and it's going to come right out of the gate in January. Now, uh, you know, the credit ratings, the three major credit firms made some comments earlier this week that kind of raised questions about the impact on the state's budget. Uh, is there anything you want to say about that? Do you think those uh, uh, those comments were off the mark or anything you want to say about these credit firms? And does that have any impact as you're trying to get support? Well, let's let's also first, you know, the, the credit reporting agencies come out frequently with different statements about things in general. So I would want to look at the specifics of what they said and how they specifically applied it to Missouri and specifically to this particular bill. The credit rating agencies also made some comments back in the spring. I remember we were in session and a big story came up about in relation to the Medicaid expansion debate. And there was a story at that time that said that states need to be very cautious about increasing government spending during this very slow, very fragile recession. So the example in the story was if, if for example, states dramatically expand their Medicaid spending, their, their welfare entitlement spending, they better be careful about how that might affect their credit rating if they suddenly have a new influx of cash going out to a program that doesn't bring any cash in. Uh, so I think many different things can affect credit ratings. I'm proud of the fact that Missouri is one of a handful of states that has a AAA credit rating. Still, we have a higher credit rating than our federal government. We're less than 10 states that have that credit rating. I think the way you maintain that credit rating is by showing you have a strong economy. And being 47th or 48th in the nation in GDP growth is not the way to show you have a strong economy. I, many people are not asking the question, well, what if we do nothing? What if 253 does not get overridden? Well, what's the next plan? And that's where I say to the governor, what is your plan for growing our economy? You've been in office now, governor, for almost five years. What is your plan for moving Missouri out of neutral? The legislature, we can pass one bill at a time that you may or may not veto. But as the leader of the state, as the CEO, as the governor in charge, where is your leadership on all of these agenda items? It's been a bit lacking. There's been a lot of kind of come back around behind the legislature after they finish and complain or take uh, take victory over what we do. So let's let's talk about a bill that may have a much better chance of being overridden, the quote-unquote Second Amendment Preservation Act. I think that's the name. I may be saying it wrong, but it's commonly known as the gun nullification bill because of a provision in it that critics say or even proponents say nullifies federal gun laws. I may be describing it incorrectly, but it from what I've read that it seems like not only Republicans want to override it, but also a number of your Democratic House colleagues appear to want to override it, too. Um, Even though some of them are saying that they expect it to be challenged in the courts. So before we get into, like, the nitty-gritty of it, why do you feel that this bill is worth overriding? And what do you think the benefit would be if it becomes law? Well, let's, let's, remember, let's remember this. The, uh, in, in our state, in our federalism state, the, the states were the original creators of the federal government, not the other way around. The states banded together and created the federal government. 
in, in doing that, there were certain enumerated powers given to that federal government, and we had the Bill of Rights flow from that as well. Many of us on my side of the aisle, and also you mentioned appropriately, many of my Democratic colleagues who very much are proponents of the Second Amendment, feel that the federal government's role in the Second Amendment begins and ends right there with the Second Amendment. And all that the federal government needs to do, if they have any question about what they should be doing in this area, is to reread that Second Amendment. And if they want any further guidance, they can read the seminal case, the Supreme Court case of D.C. versus Heller, which came out of the D.C. Circuit just a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, that could still carry yeah. which, which reasserted the individual right to keep and bear arms and said it is an individual right and that the, uh, the federal government really and, and that, that governments should not intrude upon that. So I think this bill was born out of a genesis of that frustration of the federal government doing everything but its constitutionally mandated duties. And uh, someone who I am a, a big fan of, Senator Roy Blunt, has said frequently in many of his talks that the federal government has ceased to operate constitutionally. We don't pass balanced budgets anymore on the federal – we don't pass any budgets hardly on the federal level. We're we're too worried about things like – we're too worried about getting into discussions about marriage and guns and abortion and so on and so forth. How about jobs and the economy? How about focusing on interstate commerce? How about focusing on – the, the legal immigration debate, uh, the legal versus illegal immigration debate. How about focusing on our relationships around the world, which really seem to be suffering right now, despite what the president promised he would, he would heal in that regard. So I think what states like Missouri and many other states have passed bills similar to this, although we're, I think we're on the vanguard of this one, we're basically saying we know what the Second Amendment says. We know it's an individual right to keep and bear arms in our state. Federal government stop threatening to do something that would affect that right. Now, the the bill specifically would bar enforcement in Missouri of the 1938 federal uh, gun restrictions, which include barring automatic weapons, and then also 1968. Um, is there any concern about whether or not I mean, it's not just about protecting things now, but going back seven, almost 70 years as far as federal gun laws. Or Any thoughts about that? You know, again, I, I really think that uh, the federal government needs to remove itself from the gun debate. And they, they inserted themselves heavily in the gun debate this year, which I, I think uh, inappropriately using some of the recent tragedies to leverage uh, this gun control issue. I think the debate needs to focus on the Second Amendment, the rights inherent to that. Look at the case law under that. And, and Joe, I think we need to refocus a lot of these states' rights issues back on the people in those states. We obviously have a state. We have a governor who is very proud of the hunting, the fishing, uh, the right to use a firearm for self-defense. And I think that's where the debate needs to begin. Now, have, have people become very passionate about this, which has resulted in the Second Amendment Preservation Act, where we can... We can pull that bill apart and, and complain about parts of it. Yes, but it's because of the federal government's intrusiveness. I think there is a reasonable middle ground we can reach. But first of all, the federal government has to stop inserting itself into issues that are left in well, the Well, that's a good segue to complaining. And admittingly, this is, might be self-interested because I am a journalist myself. But one thing that's gotten a lot of attention is a provision that says, and I'm quoting verbatim from the statute, no person or entity shall publish the name, address, or other identifying information of any individual who owns a firearm or who is an applicant for or holder of any license, certificate, 
permit or endorsement which allows such individual to own, acquire, or possess and carry a firearm. So there's a couple of questions about this. Number one, how is this not prior restraint, which the Supreme Court has already ruled is unconstitutional except in extraordinary court cases. And I want to be clear, I'm not an attorney here. I'm just kind of playing one on the radio, but you are an attorney. <laughs> yes. And that, that does seem to be an issue with that provision. Is is Do you have concerns over that being unconstitutional? Yeah, because basically it means that if you ran a crime story and mentioned somebody with a gun, right. you'd be violating it. Well, I, I will say this, and uh, I think you all know from my legislative history that I've been a – I actually have been a big proponent of the media and journalism. <laughs> you were the sponsor of the Journalist Shield Law in 2006, That's right. That's and right. you've also been very timely on getting back to us when we have <laughs> yeah. questions. I have lots of press avails, and you know, there's one or two editorial board writers in the state I don't agree with. Even but, Tony Messenger <laughs> gave you a ride once. So That's right. He but, did. I, well, I gave him a ride. That, that's, that's what right. I meant. That's I what think I he owes me gas money. Now, so. <laughs> but, 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 yeah, beyond the prior sure. restraint question, there's also the question if somebody voluntarily gives you information, i.e., I remember in 2008, Jeannie Riddle talked about how not only that she was a big hunter, but she also was a conceal and carry holder. And she said that in a public forum. Would I be going to jail if I wrote that in a story? I doubt it. Some might wish you were, but I'm not. (laughs) Jason, I I think those are great questions. And I think with any bill we pass, Mm. these are crafted by human beings. And we often have to go back and do fixes. And I, I think there's legislative intent and then there's application. Right. And if parts of any bill, whether it's this bill or any other, that somebody seeks to apply in an inappropriate way, we're more than happy to go back and remedy that. I think the main focus of this bill is a frustration on behalf of Missourians reflected by their representatives on both the Republican and the Democratic side of the aisle, that the federal government – this is a direct result of the federal government sticking its nose into the, second, into the Second Amendment issue where it does not belong. And so I think this is Missourians through their representatives saying – We are going to once again stand up for the Second Amendment and protect our right to defend ourselves, our family, our property, uh, and our way of life, which in Missouri is very much involved around hunting, fishing, and experiencing the outdoors. Now, what about Agenda 21? That's another bill that got vetoed. Uh, or any other, I'm, yeah, or any yeah. other bill that you want to mention, which that may is get related over, to this. That's that why I mentioned may get overridden that you wanted to mention because we we focused on two. But well, what are some other ones? I, I would say that on on a lot of the we're going to have a uh, we're having a summer caucus right here in St. Louis. I'm very proud to bring summer caucus <laughs> back to my home region again and infuse you know some good Republican money here into the city. Uh, we're going to go through every single bill in three short weeks. Yeah, all 29. All, all 29. <laughs> we'll start with the 10 House bills. So I, I guess maybe the governor likes the House better than the Senate because he vetoed 19 Senate bills. He vetoed 10 House bills. So we will start with all 10 of the House sponsors. We'll ask them to stand up before the caucus and explain why or why not we should override a particular bill. Some of the bills are duplicates of other Senate bills that may have been passed. So we'll, we'll discard those. I have a feeling we'll get down to probably having a serious discussion on, you know, four to six House bills where there's really going to be a a good discussion. The tax bill will be one. The Second Amendment bill will be one. I think a bill that will have a lot of discussion will be the the bill that we're – we always – we have all these common names for bills, right? Will be the Doe-Run bill. Mm -hmm. You want to explain that for our listeners? Yes. Uh, Doe-Run is a company down in southeast Missouri in Jefferson County. Uh, which was a smelter uh, for many decades. And that business has sort of run its course and gone by the wayside. They need to retool that entire facility. And it's going to cost um, a lot of money. 
And there's also some leftover potential liability situations with the old defunct business that also have to be addressed. The Doe Run bill was a very bipartisan bill that sailed through the legislature, um, had some debate, but ultimately made it through quite well uh, near the end of session that would allow a great Missouri-based business to reinvent itself, take care of its past liabilities in a very fair way to any affected, but yet move on. And the most important thing, they are telling us that this would result in 2,000 new jobs for Southeast Missouri, an area of the state which could really use an infusion of that capital and of that job growth. So uh, there was a story recently where my good friend Jeff Rorta uh, was quoted uh, in talking about how he's working very hard with Senator McKenna to try and bring Democratic support to that override. Mm. And Jeff and I are actually working together uh, this summer to try to bring as many voices to the table to show why this bill is pro-jobs, pro-growth, and pro-GDP uh, for Missouri. And it's done being done in a bipartisan fashion. When the governor vetoed it, one of, one of his biggest qualms, and correct me if I'm wrong, because this was, wasn't one of the marquee ones and it was a while ago, but... I'm pretty sure what he was saying was it was inappropriate that we had a piece of legislation that dealt exclusively with one company. Is, is that yeah, what, what yeah. you two would remember? So what's your response to that? What's your selling point to the legislators when you go caucus in the next weeks? It's a great question. I would say that every single piece of legislation starts with an inspiration, and it usually comes from one or two sources. Now, we hope to craft the legislation, and there should all legislation should be of some potential benefit to the entire state. I would argue that uh, this bill does impact such a major portion of our state. The, I think it's going to be a positive impact on the entire southeast region. It's going to end up affecting St. Louis with vendors and suppliers participating in this rebuild of a major Missouri company as well. I don't view this as special legislation. I view the governor's veto as a special interest veto. I think it was done for the plaintiff's trial bar, and that is the only reason. I think you'll find that labor supports this bill, business supports this bill, Republicans support it, Democrats, it's across the board. 2,000 jobs is, uh, would be historic for that region. Now, you mentioned that the veto session, I mean, that the caucus is going to be held in St. Louis. Where is it going to be held? Is any of it going to be open? Uh, I'll have to talk to our the <laughs> folks running it. Uh, we're going to have it. It's no secret. We're having it at the Westin. Okay. Uh, that's our home hotel. But we're also going to participate uh, in, a, in a lot of uh, activities. We're having, we have a lot of sponsors. Uh, we generally do some media training usually at our caucus. <laughs> We've had some professional media trainers come in to teach people how to listen to questions <laughs> and then how to answer them. Uh, you know, a lot of people have never been on a stage where they're talking to multiple reporters at any one time. Uh, we have people that come from all different parts of the state and all different backgrounds. So we do that. Uh, we try to introduce them to the St. Louis region. You know, I'm very proud of this region. It is, I often remind people that 40% of our tax revenue comes from the economic engine of St. Louis, St. Louis County, and the four or five counties that surround us. So uh, I'm, I'm always proud to show off this part of the state. I, I grew up here, uh, went to school in the city, and purposefully came back um, to, to my home state to uh, live, work, and raise my family. So uh, it's a great way to bring 
109 uh, Republican representatives and their family members into St. Louis for a weekend of education, of learning, and uh, to show them some of the things uh, we're proud about here in uh, our region. So when will it be held? It's the weekend of uh, – it's the week that the state fair, I think, ends. So it's uh, August, I guess, 12th, 13th, 14th, that Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, and Saturday. So it starts the day of the governor's ham breakfast, which is that morning in Sedalia. Okay. And so the caucus officially starts that evening, so nobody has to miss the ham breakfast. <laughs> uh, they can easily get over here from Sedalia. Yeah, they just have to drive across the state from Sedalia. That's right. And we have, uh, we have a full day of – Friday is the main day. Friday is a full day of meetings both in policy – and politics. Um, and then Saturday, we, we finish up and send people home to their families. So one of, one of the big stories of this summer in the past month or so is Normandy and Riverview Gardens busing their students. They're unaccredited districts. They're busing their students uh, who choose to accredited districts, and it's going to end up costing them um, over $20 million. The districts, yes. It's going to end up costing the unaccredited districts more than $20 million. What what legislative fixes for education do you see coming about next session? And is it going to aim at this situation specifically, or is it going to be more of all-encompassing education? I really appreciate the question because you all probably know that education reform has been one of my uh, favorite topics to work on and be engaged in uh, since I've been in the legislature. And I learned that I have to give a lot of credit to a couple of people, but predominantly Senator Jane Cunningham, who I just spoke with about this very issue. She's still very much following this story, and she's very much engaged. A little bit of legislative history that I think the mainstream media needs to set the record straight on. The legislature saw this problem coming for four or five years. Mm -hmm. We knew what the law in this state was. Open enrollment was the law. It was actually passed by a Democratic legislature 10 or 15 years ago. 1993, signed, if 19, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's 20 years <laughs> so ago. So 20 years yeah. ago, passed by a Democratic legislature, yep. signed by a, a Democratic by a Democratic governor. And I believe many of the, the folks from the teachers' unions worked on the very language in this bill uh, who are still in the Capitol today. So they know what the law is. They've been pushing back against the law and pretending that it doesn't exist for many years. But it, they, they wrote the law. We've been very happy to defend the law and come up with solutions. And Senator Cunningham... And others, like Representative Scott Dickhouse, um, uh, like other education reformers, had solutions to the open enrollment problem before there was a problem because they knew eventually someday the courts would rule on this issue and we would have a real crisis on their hands, which we do now. So what I would say to all of those school board members, all of those education bureaucrats, all those superintendents who are acting like this is suddenly something that the legislature needs to fix. The legislature has been trying to come up with a solution for this for years, and it's been the teachers' unions and the superintendents that have killed all compromise bills in the past. Senator Jane Cunningham, in her last year, had a very smart, uh, very uh, thoughtful approach to this, which almost made it through the process, and I think it died on the Senate floor. So Republicans have stood with those who have wanted reform in this area and for fixes for a long time. And I'm proud to say my closest allies on this issue are generally those in the Black Caucus in the Democratic Party, here, right here in the city of St. Louis and in the city of Kansas City and Jackson County. I'm being fairly general here because I do kind of remember those debates because in 2011 and 2012, there were 
quote unquote Turner fixes that were proposed to yes. kind of, you know, turn the spigot off or allow districts to not accept people. But they were usually paired with things that the educational establishment or educational community just didn't find very palatable. They like derided it as school choice or voucher sort of things. I may be generalizing there, but that seems to have been the conflict there. Is that a fair assessment of what happened or why do you think that those bills didn't end up passing during those times? Jason, the, for whatever reason, the education establishment likes the status quo in Missouri up to the, up to this year. Well, now that we have this on our hands and now they don't mm-hmm. like the status quo, they haven't wanted to support changing so much as a comma or a period in our current education statute. So it went beyond discussions on tuition tax credits or or teacher tenure reform. Their, their idea was to do nothing and pretend that this day would never come. So I think it's beyond just leveraging or tying things together. I don't think they wanted to support anything. Well, now they're going to have to, they're going to, have to work with us on coming up with some sort of fix. And I would remind people about this. We have a public education system in this state that guarantees a free public education for all school children. And I think implicit in that is for all school children, regardless of their zip code. Mm -hmm. And kids in the city who are not receiving a good public education should not be punished because of the zip code they happen to be brought up in. And money is not the solution to this problem because we have some of our best schools in the state that are right out here in the county where I live. I live in the Rockwood School District. My kids are very blessed. We spend about $8,000 per student. We are AAA bond rated, blue ribbon certified, national merit scholars. 20 miles away, right here in the city of St. Louis, where we are today, we spend nearly $16,000 per pupil. They are basically unaccredited districts or barely provisionally accredited. They They are failing. They are abysmal. People are leaving the city because of those schools. So money, if money were the answer, the St. Louis City school districts would be leading the state on performance. So it's a complicated, convoluted question that we could spend hours talking about. But it has been Republicans siding with with reform-minded members of the Black Caucus uh, on the Democratic side of the aisle that have been leading the charge to say, we need to do something. Well, now, now the issue sits squarely in our laps. And I welcome the education establishment to take off their blinders and realize that a free public education for Missouri school children means just that. It's for all kids, regardless of where they live. You have talked to me about this before, but uh, for our listeners, what are you looking at for 2016 as far as your political future? And are you looking at anything in 2014? Yes. Either. Good, well, good question. Those are great questions. And 2014, sort of the uh, – it's it's a bit murky right now to see whether or not there would be any opportunities. Right now there's no direct opportunities sitting right in front of me. So but, you're not looking at the state senator? Well, uh, you know, Senator Nieves is my senator right now, and he would have to choose not to run. And Hey, we've seen Stranger Things, right, in the last four or five years. But hey, maybe Blaine Lutemeyer doesn't want to run again, and <laughs> right. Davis Senator, would be come congressman. Congressman, right? So, and, but but continue. You, you you don't know. You don't know. So there could be something dramatic that happens, and suddenly I may have a Senate seat to open up. We mentioned Senator Cunningham. Her Senate seat evaporated. Right. On her. Maybe right. maybe yeah. one will appear for me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but Senator Nieves and I are very good friends, and, and I've, I've, we haven't talked about that because it's just not a reality right, right now. Right, so right. if something does open up for me, uh, either on the elected side or maybe uh, working on some governmental project for a year or so, 2016 and the race for that will be here before we know it, won't it, Joe? I mean, it'll, yes. it'll start in 2015. Yes. So I really won't have a whole lot of time off. So 
I've, I've tried to decide what, what should I do next. Many people have approached me. Many people have suggested I continue my public service. I've really enjoyed uh, – I, I enjoy being a practicing attorney, being able to help people, but that's one person at a time versus being in a state legislature where you can have an impact on all Missourians. And I think for the, for the good. I think we've done a lot of things for the good the last uh, eight years that I've – seven years that I've been in the legislature. I come from that prosecuting attorney background. That was, that was my first internship in law school, working for the Queens County District Attorney's Office uh, and interning for them. And then my first job, my first official job right after law school was working for uh, a Republican prosecuting attorney, actually, up in uh, Nassau County uh, in New York. And I worked in the district court in Hempstead, and I was a prosecuting attorney for, for two years on the front lines, prosecuting everything from felony arraignments uh, all the way down to misdemeanor thefts and everything in between. Uh, I saw people that were probably part of the Soprano crime family before that was a, uh, <laughs> before that was a TV show. Uh, and I really enjoyed that experience. Uh, the Attorney General's office is something that really appeals to me. It's a working office. I've enjoyed being a working speaker. Uh, I think I've helped transform the Speaker's office into a true uh, statewide model where the governor is of one political party and he occupies the highest level in the executive branch. I've been more than happy to partner with him and also to be the, uh, the, uh, the party in exile or the adversarial party on things we don't agree with him on mm-hmm. and share that bully pulpit with him. And I think the attorney general's office would be a real working office that I would enjoy waking up and, and working in every day, whether it's in consumer protection and consumer finance, whether it's in the criminal justice world, uh, whether it's in the financial realm, which I have a real keen interest in as well. So that office probably appeals to me most, Joe, uh, and it's one that I, I, I am focused on right mm-hmm. now. Uh, official announcements will probably have to wait for a little later day, but it's one that I'm, I'm heavily in focused on right now and intend to uh, – to definitely pursue. Now, you're and not, it's you're, currently occupied you, by another slew grad. You're That's not, right. but just, just a quick follow-up. I know we're running out of time. You're not the only person who's, you know, subtly expressed interest for that pr- position. I mean, Senator Kurt Schaefer has been linked to it. He recently got $500,000 from a family trust to assumably run for statewide office. Eric Schmidt's been put in that. Uh, Catherine Hannaway as well. Would that kind of change your thinking and where to run for that office if several other Republicans get in that race? Are you ready to fight tooth and nail against them if need be? I think Republicans learned a good lesson in the primary battles of 2012. We spent $23 million in primaries, and we didn't have a whole lot to show for it mm-hmm. at the end of the day. I think there's a lot of people who may want to run for a particular office. Ultimately, though, in the end, I do not think you'll see multiple tier one candidates running for the Because I would office. say those are all tier one I candidates. Would ag- I would agree. And I think... I think what will happen is those who are willing to work the hardest, travel the state the most, have the most contact with the media, with the grassroots, with donors, large and small, with community leaders uh, here and there, those candidates will rise to the top. They'll be the clear front runners. And it's my intention to, uh, to prove to the people of Missouri that I'm, I'm worthy of, of that choice. Thank you for joining us. You can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at J Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at, at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can follow the speaker on Twitter at Speaker Tim Jones. Well, thank you very much for joining. We'll be back next week with another guest. Hopefully, we're we're still cementing that out.
But yeah. we'll be back next It'll week. It'll be a secret. <laughs> Until then, so long. So long.